You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Hulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome to the show, Father Paul. Good morning to both of you. So this week, we're going to revisit a topic. I was chatting with Father Paul earlier today, and a lot of the material that we cover takes time to digest, both as individual components that are part of a bigger puzzle, but also in terms of the bigger puzzle and what these concepts mean. And we've hit on this question of the oasis of the garden, and it's accessible to most people who have a mortgage or who have to pay bills. It's accessible. We understand the appeal of being able to walk away from property, of being able to abandon it. If you don't build something on a piece of land and you just use it the way God created it, you're not enslaved. But once you build something on it, you're enslaved. We all get that. We have jobs, we have bills, but that's just a piece of it. That's sort of like the front end wisdom to the whole narrative. And so we've asked Father Paul to come back again today and reflect again on this question of the oasis and of the Gan, the garden. And of course, the most famous garden in the Bible is the Gan in the story of Genesis the Garden of Eden. So, Father Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Father Mark. What you just said sums it up. But once more, it is the words. I cannot repeat enough, and this is going to be heard again and again in the podcasts, that unless one hears the text in the original, one is not going to capture the real depth. Let me put it this way. Remember my thesis that anyone who knows more by heart the Old Testament in one's own language would know it and understand it better than a scholar who knows Hebrew and Greek but does not know the entire text. It's no question in my mind about that. But then imagine someone who knows the text in the original. Perhaps it doesn't acquire more breadth, but it definitely acquires more depth. And we'll see this in the presentation of today, where I was asked to speak about the oasis and Gan, which is the garden, Eden. Let me begin with Eden and end with Eden. The trouble with Eden is, for most people, it's just a proper name. Well, in the Bible, it is not a proper name. Remember, in the Semitic languages, there are no proper names. All words mean something, and then we choose one of these words to call someone. For instance, in the Middle East, everybody would know that if someone is called Habash, it's like the... Turkey, the animal, the bird, you know, which is dark, and thus you assume that a dark boy, his parents will call him Habash, period. Now, with Eden, we have the same thing. Let me go to a few passages. Psalm 36, verse 8, they feast on the abundance of their house, and thou givest them drink from the river, notice, you have river here, of thy delights. That's what you have in English. But delights in the original Hebrew is the plural of Eden, of Eden, of thy Edens, that would be more proper. In 
2 Samuel 1.24, Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you daintily. Whatever that word means in English, but in the original is Im Adanim, with Edens, with delights. Jeremiah 51.34, Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me, he has crushed me, he has made me an empty vessel, he has swallowed me like a monster, he has filled his belly with my delicacies. In the original, with my Edens. And the interesting thing about this text is that two verses later, we hear the word fountain, mekor. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain, mekor, dry. Remember the river that gushes out of the middle of the Garden of Eden. And then the parallelism is found also in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you know that you dig cisterns in places that are dry. So... This connotation of Eden as being a place of delight is central. This is how the oasis, the garden, is described. The place where God will give us rest, a life of delight. Now, I'm going to move. My hearers are going to assume that there is a jump, but precisely my conviction that it's not a jump if we keep in mind this understanding of Eden. In Ezekiel, we have two texts that describe Tyre and Egypt, two powerful nations. You know how Tyre is really put down by Ezekiel in lengthy chapters. And then Egypt is the same. Now, in the passage about Tyre 31, 1 through 18, I'm going to jump because we don't have much time. In verse 18 of Ezekiel 31, we hear, whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? It's amazing. Technically, for a general hearer, it's out of the blue. You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the nether world. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This passage was addressed to Egypt. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. So Egypt is likened to Eden. That's why Jacob and his children went down to Egypt to be fed. With Tyre, which is chapter 28, in verse 13, you, and he's addressing the king of Tyre, you were in Eden, the garden of God. We have here the word Eden, and the word garden, which is gan in Hebrew. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelial, topaz, and so on. So interestingly, and I shall come back to that, the description of a plush and rich city is made as a reflection of a garden in the wilderness, and not the other way around. <laughs> Let me repeat, very important. To say how a city is really impressive, you present it as a large oasis. 
And in this regard, remember what the famous king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, did in Babylon. He planted his hanging trees. My dear friends, this is a fact, historical. That's how the people of the area had their reference. Take, for instance, someone coming from the Midwest and someone who was born in New York City and grew up in New York City and so only New York City. To that person, you have to say, well, the Midwest is as impressive as New York City. <laughs> but in the Bible, the reference is definitely the garden, which is a place of delight. Remember how I said to you so many times that God put the man in the garden to enjoy it. That word is never translated like this. To enjoy it, to till, serve the earth and enjoy the garden and not work it as we imagine. Remember that famous parable, which is special to Matthew in chapter 13, or earlier the one that says, and the planter sleeps and wakes up and everything just blossoms. Now let me go to Ezekiel, where the new city again is presented as the Garden of Eden, the land and the city and so on. In chapter 36, we hear, and please give me attention, is very important because we have three key phrases. I'm going to read it all. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. Okay, we're talking about waste places becoming a city. But listen to the following. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. Now, I'm sure you guessed that this word tilled is to'abed. It will be served the same verb as we hear in Genesis chapter 2. Here again. If you hear only till, it's not going to solve the issue because you think that you have a machine that is tilling the ground. Now, let's pursue verse 35. And they will say this land that was lazelade has become like, you have guessed, the garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now inhabited and 45. Notice how Ezekiel speaks to someone who grew in the Midwest, saying that the famous city of New York looks like our fertile Midwest. Let's pursue, and here comes really the technical knockout. Then the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask of me to do for them, to increase their men like a flock. Now listen to the Hebrew, to make them tzon adam, a flock adamite, adamite flock, a flock of Adam. And here the repetition like the flock sown for sacrifices, like the flock sown at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. You have guessed the original. Sown Adam, a flock of human beings. I don't like the English translation 
with flocks of men, immediately you think of the plural. No, it's just an Adamite flock. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. And, you know, twice Ezekiel earlier said, I will change your hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. Notice, not spiritual hearts, hearts of flesh, just plain human beings as I created them living and enjoying the garden. Now, there is another interesting text, which, you know, it's very hard to remember because it's thrown there in Genesis 13, 10, 11. When Abraham told Lot, you choose the area you want to go to and I'll take the other one. And you see the twist here that Lot chooses the better place and Abraham ends up in the wilderness, but God blessed him. It goes like that, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. That's very interesting, because we had heard earlier in the text of Ezekiel that the land of Egypt is basically like the garden of the Lord. And remember, the land of Egypt was presented from the perspective of Joseph, who made sure that the people would have food that he put in the buildings. So the buildings are secondary to the fact that the land was fertile. And in 11, Genesis 13, 11, notice the connection. I mean, if you keep hearing, you get it. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. The east in the original is Mikedem, which is exactly the word found in Genesis chapter 2. I mean, that's what I mean again and again saying one has to listen to scripture. Basically, according to me, if one would do this in the classes of Sunday school, beginning with the pre-K, when people turn 14, 15 and ready to become a bar or bat mitzvah or to take the confirmation as in the Roman Catholic Church, they are ready. But we Orthodox don't do this. We baptize and chrismate and give communion to a baby who's six days old. And then we expect this total inner regeneration. This is silly mysticism. It's through the ear that everything takes place. So I would prefer to just stop here. I'm sure that Father Mark will revisit this topic time and again. <laughs> but I moved in the direction of Eden as being a chosen name in the original Hebrew to reflect the reality of the oasis and the garden. And one is in the biblical story thrown in that Syrian desert between Palestine and Mesopotamia and one is to choose between remaining around Palmyra or crossing the Euphrates to go to the cities of Mesopotamia or crossing the Jordan to enter into the cities of Judah. And all these shall be destroyed and replaced with the new land around the new Jerusalem, 
which is the city called the Lord is there in Ezekiel 48 and where the land, as I keep repeating, does not have cities. Remember, the land of Ezekiel is different than the land of Joshua. Joshua conquered cities, kept those who were still habitable, and built new cities. And things went bad. The ultimate city was Jerusalem, built by Solomon. But in Ezekiel, we have only the allotment of the arable land around this, if you like, cloud city, which is the Lord is there with his law. Remember that the city is surrounded by the 12 tribes. And you could see how this aspect comes time and again and again and again. I was so impressed. Whenever there is a reference to the heaven, which is called Jannat in Arabic, Jannah, Jannah, from the garden, the same root we have always mentioned time and again. And there are a lot of rivers underneath a reference to Genesis chapter 2. And thinking about Eden as not just being a proper name, but being the delight, when you talked about the way that we translate Adam tilled and that sort of thing, I'm looking back at Hebrew, it says that he served and he kept it. And the only places I can find those two verbs together, serve and keep, one time in Numbers it has to do with the priestly office, but the three other times where it appears, it's either keep his commandments— and serve him, talking about God, and then one other time where you don't keep the commandments and serve other gods. So it seems significant that that pair of verbs, serve and keep, apply to Eden in Genesis 2, or the delight of the garden, but elsewhere applies to God and his commandments. Would you be willing to comment on that? I was leading you to ask me this question, Richard. <laughs> I figured. I felt led. Meaning, meaning to my ear, my not only Semitic, but scriptural ear, you keep the earth by keeping the commandment of God who asked you to keep the earth. It's not that you keep it. I'm sure my hearers are going to be frustrated because they link this with Father Paul. He never gives us a respite to feel good about ourselves, that we are doing something good or the right thing. Remember, you do what God asks you to do, whether you feel good or not good. That part is totally immaterial. It's by doing so that you will be blessed, and if not, you will be under the curse of the death he will strike you with. And you said it. Again, you have to hear it in Hebrew. You just confirmed my thesis. You heard it in Hebrew in conjunction with the rest of Scripture. Had you not known yourself, Richard, these other texts, you would not have come up with this conclusion. <laughs> and that is really the dabar, the matter at hand. We do not have to engage with the dabar as the Alexandrian school, Greco-Roman taught us. You don't engage. You just understand it correctly. Imagine a general that gives an order that is misunderstood. It's a disaster. 
And to understand God's order, one has to know scripture because God is in his words, not in his word as Alexandria taught us, like singular word. No one speaks in a singular word. So, Richard, thank you very much that, uh, you know, I was not expecting less from you, but it allowed me to underscore this reality of Scripture. And you see how the word, like when I wrote my book, I was impressed with this word, till in Ezekiel, connected with Tzon Adam, an Adamic flock. You know how in the Semitic languages we use a noun as an adjective. The classic example of mine is a golden watch. Golden is an adjective. But then if the watch is silver, you say a silver watch. You have a noun that functions as an adjective. So that's why I said the translations flocks. It is as though you're underscoring the richness. No, the author is saying as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, because he got it, that the building is made of stones that are the human beings. That's the idea. So Nadam can also be translated as human flock, just like Da'at Elohim can be the knowledge of God, but can also mean divine knowledge. I mean, the way that Hebrew structure works. Excellent. Yeah, that's why I gave it as Adamic flock, if you like, human flock. It should be flock of humans, not flocks in the plural. And here again, I stress this due to the biblical oneness of the flock, which Jesus picks up in John 10. And I think that it can also be a problem because sometimes we'll think that it's the flock belonging to a human. You could translate it either way, but in the context, it can only be a human flock, meaning consisting of humans, not belonging to a human. Absolutely. Of meaning the constituents. Yes, your point is well taken. Let me pursue that because it's interesting. If one picks only verse 38, so shall waste cities be filled with flocks of men or the flock of men, then that could go either way. But if you hear 38 in tandem with the previous verse, it's very clear. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the hosts of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their men like its own Adam. I mean, this is non-debatable. For someone who grew up in a shepherd, he, that person knows that it's the shepherd that makes the flock and not vice versa. But it's interesting to always point out whenever we can in the text so that your hearer be convinced that it is so and then move to other examples and say since this is the meaning of the flock that is created by the shepherd then remember to apply it every time you hear flock notice how ezekiel can move from a city to the oasis because he has no problem to refer to tyre and egypt in the same way and then from there you move beyond ezekiel i say beyond you know scripturally because the torah is very important to genesis 13 where lot chooses the valley of the jordan that is like the garden of the lord like the land of egypt it's just 
important. I'm very happy about this podcast because we have the opportunity to precisely invite the hearers to realize that in the beginning was scripture, in the middle is scripture, and at the end there will be open books, which is scripture. How many times have you had to read scripture to start to see these connections? How do you hear scripture? I remember that when you would commute from Connecticut to go teach at Holy Cross, you'd be listening to scripture in the car. Would you listen to it in different languages? I mean, can you just talk about what you did? I'll tell you what I did. Obviously, I did it in English because I'm not that versatile in Hebrew and Greek. But I would not have been able to write my book of Psalms which many consider my best book among the three books of introduction, you know, Psalms and Wisdom, and I agree with them. Actually, many students told me that your best class, Father Paul, was your class on Psalms and Wisdom. You know, I had to choose. Obviously, I went for Psalms, and I went back and forth. You're talking about a little bit shy of three hours one way on Thursday, which is what? 14, 15 times by two, that's 20 to 30 times a year, where I would listen to the Psalms. Obviously, I moved to do Spanish and Greek and so I mean, just for me. But it's the repetition. And that made me convinced of the statement I repeat. Obviously, until now, I don't know the Psalms by heart in Hebrew. I know them in Arabic. By the way, Arabic helps me because it's close to the Semitic Hebrew. But I could have listened to them in Arabic. It's just they were available in English. It's the repetitive hearing. You get hit. You discover that a psalm is repeated elsewhere where you have the same psalm said under Elohim, the other one, Yahweh. Let's say you don't know. You start hearing it, hearing it, hearing it. And slowly on, you discover, let me go on an aside, because the following were a great discovery for me, that at the beginning you have more David, and he disappears all along, the same as you have king applied to the human king, more so in the early Psalms, and then slowly on, it's only God who is the king. And the same applies to Zion, that dislodges Jerusalem, and so So it's not a question that... I want it to be so. It's the rehearing of that without looking. Here I have really to say this to everybody, but on top of the list is the Orthodox. Like an Orthodox have a very short Bible because every Orthodox like to zero in on theosis, deification. Obviously, if it is found, it's found two times. Or the word church. No, you don't do that. You just listen. Unless you do that, you will not realize what Richard just pointed out. Now, obviously, the example of Richard works in Hebrew and not in English because the English twist in joy into work and serve into till. So there are gradations, but at least I answered your point that it is through the opportunities that are given to you. I was driving six hours every week. Plus, on Sunday to my church, if you add all this, that's a lot of time. Listening to what? To music or stupid political news or the talk show between a Roman Catholic priest and a rabbi on Sunday trying to answer the questions of the people. God does not answer our questions. He Mm -hmm. tells us what to do.
And that's the importance of the hearing. That's what I did. Now, if slowly on, let's say I have the energy, which I don't have at this time, I would have done it earlier to hear in Hebrew because, uh, oh, let me give you an example. Tom Dykstra told me once, you know, when he was working on my New Testament and I kept saying the original, the original, the original, he bought a tape of New Testament Greek and it was difficult for him. Okay. But he walks often with his dog on a daily basis. He decided one day, that's what he told me, which is true, but I'm saying he just told me that. He kept listening to the Greek, and although he couldn't capture everything, I mean, his Greek is not, I mean, it's very hard to follow. But he started, he told me, to capture connections between words. And that reminded me of the example I give in the class. Why do you think Paul, out of the blue, jumps while speaking about the respect to the leaders and so on, to the love of the neighbor as me, because it is in the original. I asked the students, and luckily for me, because I have witnesses, a student guest. I said, close your books and your eyes and tell me what you hear in Romans 13. For rulers are not at a, you know, you have to respect the rulers. And then for the same reason, you also pay taxes for authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes, due revenue and so on. Oh, no one anything except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It's an obvious jump. I mean, he's telling you to obey, obey the leaders. And then he jumps to the love of the neighbor. Now, I said to my students, okay, I'm going to read it time and again until one of you picks it up by the sound. 13, 7 sounds like this. Apodo te pasin tas ophilas to ton foron ton foron to totelos totelos to ton fovon ton fovon to tintimin tintimin. Miveni, miven ophilete, imito alilus agapan, orar agapan ton eteron nomon pepliroken. I read it several times until one picked it up that the connection between these two verses are the root ophil, apothote pasin tas ophilas, give back to all what is due unto them. Notice the passing. Give passing tas ophilas. Okay? But then tonforon and tonforon picks up the word forus in verse 6. It's the taxes. And then from this ophilas, what is due, you do not indebted. So ophilas, ophilete is to be indebted. Meaning, and that's my interpretation in my commentary on Romans, he's telling you what I just said earlier. You don't love by choice, let alone the goodness of your heart. I just abhor this statement among Christians. Goodness of your heart? Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's how you deal with your three daughters and son and you goodness. No, you're going to do it by the time they figure out if they are in the mood or not. So Paul 
is saying, and here it's good for the Americans to hear it, you know, only two things you must do in the U.S. Die and pay your taxes, or preferably in that order, pay your taxes and die. <laughs> and Paul here proved himself to be the proto-American, meaning, but he's twisted. He said, the love of the neighbor, you have to look at it the way you look at your paying taxes to the Roman authorities. And trust me, the American authorities cannot compare because you can always fool them in the return of your taxes or try. I bet a few Romans tried. Anyway, this is how the connection is made. I kept repeating it. And then I think by the third time, a student picked it up. He may have been cheating and reading the original, you know, but doesn't matter. It's just the sound. Ophilas and ophilite. That, in my mind, cannot be happenstance. Plus, it has a bearing on your understanding of the text, meaning that, no, you do not love the neighbor out of choice or goodness of your heart. And even duty originally has the same meaning of indebtedness, but not anymore in our modern language. So when you stress the meaning of the indebtedness, and that's why when you translate the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive the other. Debts is very powerful that you are forgiving someone else's due to you. That is powerful. And that's why in Matthew you have, again, this special parable of the servant who was indebted with a large amount. You see how we go back and we hear Matthew in a different way once we make connections. The good thing would be to start with small books, as you did yourselves. Hosea already is a big book. But if you choose Micah, Nahum, and so on, Teach the people to make interconnection, then slowly on they will make interconnection in big books and then in the entire Bible. We did a lot today. Mark, you have to wake up at three o'clock and do your editing. Let me try to phrase it in the spirit of the podcast. I do it out of the goodness of my heart. (laughs) (laughs) This is a great podcast, Father Paul. Fantastic. Thank you, sirs. Thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.